In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. We are about to celebrate the Feast of uh, the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary for her to be assumed into heaven, which is what we're going to celebrate on Sunday, the August 15th. It's a big solemnity. We know that there's a mystery about whether or not she actually died. We know she didn't know corruption, or her, her body didn't know corruption because she never inherited uh, neither original sin nor personal sin. So, so at the moment in which God wanted her to come to him, he decided by, by a very special privilege to have her with him through this mystery of the Assumption. Sometimes we call it the Dormition. But the fact is that she, she did not know uh, a death that led to corruption, but her body and soul were brought to heaven. That's what we, the great mystery that we contemplate which is, of course, what our goal is, or, or not our goal, but our, our destiny, is to be with God forever in heaven. But we will have to pass through death, and we will know corruption. And we may, we may suffer quite a bit before we die. We don't know that naturally, but, but that's an occasion for us now to think about death, to see how ready am I for death, not so that I be assumed like Our Lady, we don't have that privilege, but to see if I'm ready so that I can be purified and eventually, at the end of time, rise with body and soul into heaven. And this is particularly apt if we consider tomorrow's feast, which is the feast of St. Maximilian Kolbe, who died voluntarily in the place of a stranger in a German death camp in Auschwitz, which was located in the German-occupied Poland during the Second World War, World War II, and he died at the age of 47. You probably know the story that there had been an escapee, and uh, as a reprisal against this, the Germans decided that 10 people in the concentration camp should be executed. And one of the, they were chosen at random, and one of the fellows chosen was a, name by the, a fellow by the name of Franciszek Gajonivich. <coughs> that's how you pronounce it. And he was a sergeant uh, in the Polish army, and there he was, and he had been there for quite a long time in Auschwitz. And of course, he began to weep at the knowledge that he would never see his wife and children again. He was a father, and, and so the story, as you know, goes that Father Maximilian Kolbe, who was a Franciscan, a conventional Franciscan, stepped up and said to the commander in charge, look, I'm, I'm a priest, um, you know, he, this man has a wife and family, but I can take his place. I'm alone, I'm a Catholic priest, take me instead of him. 
So he even contended that he was elderly. He was 47, where the other guy was 41, you know, so wasn't exactly elderly, but um, anyway, the, the sergeant uh, the, or the commander, the German commander agreed, and he, together with 10 others, was placed in what they call the starvation bunker. Gajanovich had spent five years in the, over five years in Auschwitz, but ironically, he never saw his sons again because they were killed in a Soviet bombardment, and Nevertheless, he did see his, his wife, Helena, who died in 1997, and he went on to live uh, to the age of 94 and died in 1995. But this was a heroic moment for Maximilian Kolbe that is quite striking, that he chose to embrace his own death like that because it had been prepared well in advance. And we know that when he was a young boy, he had a vision where Our Lady appeared to him, and you know that story, she offered him two crowns. One was white and one was red. She said, which one do you want? The white one is for purity, and the red one is for martyrdom. He said, well, I'll take both. I'll take both. And without fully knowing what it meant, but he understood that he would live apostolic celibacy and virginity, and of course that he would embrace, or that he had the destiny to embrace martyrdom. He didn't know naturally how at that time. He was only a young boy, um, but uh, I think he was only 14 years old. And uh, he developed, perhaps because of that, he developed a deep devotion to Our Lady. He, he suffered tuberculosis. In fact, he thought that he would die somehow because of that, but he did recover, but he did remain quite uh, frail. And uh, when he saw in, I, I guess it was in Poland and other places, the opposition against uh, Pope Pius X and then Pope, Pi Pope Benedict XV, there were demonstrations by uh, Masonic uh, figures and uh, modernists and so forth. They, they were very, very uh, hostile to the figure of the Pope. And this, this hurt him deeply. He loved the Pope very much. And so, Given that they were very often violent demonstrations, he decided to start a movement called the Immaculata Movement, devoted to Our Lady. And um, it was uh, done through a, a magazine that he started, a Polish magazine called the, the Night of the Immaculata. And you know, these were this was a magazine that he helped run and found, and was spread throughout uh, Poland. And uh, I remember the year I was received into the church, uh, 1982, that was the year that he was canonized by Pope John Paul II. And that's when the story came out. And uh, Well, he was, for me, my first saint, the first saint I'd ever heard of. Not, not the first saint I'd heard of, but the, you know, that I'd heard of being canonized. And uh, I still remember that the Pope had said that he was not, strictly speaking, uh, killed out of odium fide, that is, out of hatred for the Catholic faith as such, but as the result of of an act of Christian charity. And John Paul II said that the systematic hatred of whole categories of human people, of humanity, that was propagated by the Nazis at the time at the, of the regime was in itself uh, an inherently inhuman and an act of hatred of, of all religion, and specifically, of course, the Christian religion. And, and meaning that 
Maximilian Kolbe, though he embraced this alone, was considered uh, or was equated to martyrdom. That's why we have the red veil for martyrdom. And as you probably know, he was led to the starvation bunker, and there they they were just left to die. They didn't do anything specifically to kill them. They just left them there to die. No water, no food, nothing. And it's quite striking when you think of the evilness of a regime that would treat fellow human beings like that. And that one could uh, stand by so sort of imperturbed in front of such cruelty. It means, it can only mean that the people in some ways that were deciding this or involved in this or protecting this must have had in some way a severely impaired conscience or what we might call a deadened conscience. Um, it's as though they no longer had any sensitivity to what is true, what is good, what is, what is, what is the truth here, what is wrong. It's like if you have a, a deadened nerve, like if you get paralyzed and you can't, you can't feel anything, you know, a person who's p- paralyzed in a, in a car accident, they can't feel their legs or what have you. you know, and and, uh, and uh, there is a danger, of course, well, not so much that we're in a car accident, but that we can get used to bad behavior, even in our life, or just the, the immoral value systems around us, that we end up never doing reparation, uh, that we could get kind of indifferent to that. Oh, well, you know, all these sort of things that we hear about, that, that, that we're bombarded with in the media, of course, that we hear a lot about, and that we maybe become indifferent, and as a result of that indifference, we could become hardened. It's what we call the hardened conscience. A hardened conscience is closed. It's kind of like seared. It's very difficult to penetrate. A person who has a hardened conscience, it's as though they, you know, they're cauterized. The, the conscience has to be a sensitive instrument, like a compass, like a compass that tells you which way is north, south. If you were in the forest completely on your own, you didn't know where you're going, you'd need a compass to direct you the way. But if the compass is somehow broken, or it's got something blocking the needle, right, uh, it's not, it's not going to guide the, the person naturally. Right? And uh, conscience is that. It's a God-given compass, and it guides all our actions, big ones, important ones, small actions of every day. And this can happen, that, that, a, that a person's conscience can be seared. I don't care. I don't care about this. We can, we can begin to think. It's too much for us. Or that is, we end up being rendered insensitive. Especially when we're not willing, in some way, to do, make atonement. You know, Maria, read the paper, and he, he would read a kidnapping here, you know, during the military, you know, the Red Brigades in Italy at the time, and, and uh, all these other whatever, aberrations, immoral aberrations, and the church, things were in great upheaval. And he would read the paper, and he said, you know, I continue to make acts of contrition for this, for that, for my sin, for my sins too. No, he wasn't just looking at, you know, the sins of others, right, of course. And um, this is, you know, when we see evil, like something like that story of Maximilian Kolbe, it's both great heroism in front of great evil. 
I mean, the great love of God, the, the willingness to follow through on that vision that he had, to embrace the crown of martyrdom, the red crown, the bloodied crown. And, uh, you know, you read St. Paul's letter to Timothy, Timothy who was a young bishop in the church, or young, I don't know, but he was, you know, he was uh, mentored by St. Paul, and, uh, and St. Paul speaks about those who had accepted false teachings, he, and he, he's very pretty clear, you know, these, he, said, he, he describes these doctrines as, as like demons, and, and uh, he says, such teachings, he says in his first letter to Timothy, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. What does he, you know, what does that mean? I mean, uh, who's, so it's possible that that he uses that analogy of the searing iron because it was common at the time to punish evildoers, I suppose criminals, by branding them, right, with a mark uh, to identify them for what they were. I think slaves were like that too, but, but uh, he's, maybe St. Paul is referring to this custom kind of implying that the conscience of these people, the, the evil doctrines that were pervading at that time, that they can suffer a defect uh, as, as would cauterized skin have. You know, it's hardened, it's cauterized, it, it's rough, it's, it's not sensitive to the touch. Uh, it's, it's, it's a powerful image that he uses. And so he invites Timothy says to him, he wants him to act like a good minister to the people of God so that they not be led into these errors that were circulating at the time, many of them, pagan influences. Uh, and this, this is the great story of the people of Israel, that they're always being influenced by their slavery in Egypt, where they would take on some of these pagan practices, sometimes of idolatry, and throughout the Old Testament, different times in the Book of Kings and, and other times, you know, the, 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 very, the kings themselves actually gave heed to very, very horrible pagan practices such as child sacrifice and obviously idolatry and all these terrible things. Right? And uh, the, the prophets always came to rebuke them for this kind of behavior. And, and, uh, and Timothy or rather, St. Paul is telling Timothy you know, to act like a good minister, doing everything he can to steer them away from unsound doctrine and to be exemplary and prudent in the performance of his duties. And that's where he says, you know, the, the famous line, he says, the church, he says, is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. Pillar and bulwark of the truth. This, that famous story of Marcus Grodi, this... Um, who was at the time Protestant, and he, well, he was, I don't know if he was a Protestant minister, but he went to the same seminary as uh, Scott Hahn, and uh, he he was completely convinced that that uh, you know that uh, sola scriptura only the word of God is in, in you know in the scriptures, and uh, somebody kind of like played a kind of a trick on him, and said to him, "Look, I'm reading here from Saint Timothy." Uh, it says, uh, see if you can uh, fill in the blank. He says, blank is the pillar of the truth. And Margaret Gray says, well, the word of God is the pillar of the truth. 
He says, actually, it says here, the church is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. And he said, come on, give me this, give me this. This is, he, you know, he couldn't believe it. And he looked at it. And sure enough, it says, the church is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. And that was the beginning of his conversion that he realized that, you know, that this is scripture that is telling him that the church is the guide, right? And, um, and, and that's why we understand from that, you know, that the church guides us in moral truths, is the magisterium, we learn from that. And, um, and uh, so, of course, we know that nowadays we run the risk, um, and, and many people run that risk, of that our consciences kind of fall asleep particularly in ethical matters, in different matters. It could be in, I suppose, doctrinal matters. But, and that, that's why the church always implores God the grace that the integrity of human consciences will not be lost. And it's, a, it's a beautiful prayer that we can make and unite ourselves to the church, that the integrity of human consciences not be hardened. Because... Though one may have had bad formation or be misled from an early age, there's, there's still a, a natural propensity towards the truth in our conscience. And the church prays that there be a healthy sensitivity with regards to the good, the true good, and what is truly evil, and that we never be blunted, that the conscience never be blunted with regards to that that we have this integrity and this sensitivity. And th- these, are, these are profoundly linked. Mm-hmm. And it's intimately linked to, to the action of the Spirit of Truth. The Spirit of Truth, the Holy Spirit that acts in our soul. That, I mean, that, that, that's why a person can be guided by their conscience. Because the, the Spirit of Truth, the Holy Spirit, is, is acting there. And uh, that's why St. Paul says on several occasions in his letter to the Ephesians in his letter to the Thessalonians he says do not quench the spirit do not grieve the Holy Spirit to picture the imagine the Holy Spirit saying okay don't do that that's wrong don't you know don't raise your voice to this person don't take that thing that you could take now but it would be wrong to steal that thing right or not declare that in your taxes or that would be wrong to do that. Maybe you should write down. Hmm? Don't take that thing even though nobody will ever notice. I'm noticing it. The Holy Spirit is I notice it. And the person can say, no, well, this is useful for me. I'm going to take it. And then the, the Holy Spirit is like grieved. And so that's why the church uh, constantly implores with the greatest fervor that there will be um, no increase of in the world of, of, the, of the sin that the gospel calls the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that's the only thing that can't be pardoned. Because, of course, God is merciful. He, he forgives us. But blasphemy is saying, I know this is wrong, but I don't want to be forgiven, and I don't accept it, and my, kind of like my conscience is totally hardened. You know, as long as we're in that way, I don't want to be forgiven, even though I know it's wrong. I suppose there's other way of describing it, but the, the, that would be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So, let's ask uh, somebody as heroic and as strong as Maximilian Kolbe to give us 
a real desire to know the Word of God truly, be guided by the Church and its magisterium and the history of the Church and the saints. Because after all, he had, he, had, he had studied, he did a doctorate. I think he was like 20 years old when he did his doctorate at the Gregorian. And uh, one eyewitness says that when he was in that bunker, in this prison cell, he led the other prisoners in prayer to Our Lady. And each time the guards checked on him, he was standing or he was kneeling in the middle of the cell, looking calm and serene to all those who entered. But after two weeks, no water, no food, they all were dehydrating and starving. After two weeks, Colby was the only one who remained alive. And, um, well, the guards wanted the bunker emptied, so they gave him a lethal injection with carbolic acid. I don't know exactly what that is, but uh, it doesn't sound too uh, healthy. Uh, it's, uh, and he you know, willfully gave his, extended his arm, raised his left arm, his left arm and uh, calmly waited for the deadly poison to take its effect, and he died almost instantly after that. He kind of accepted it. It was an act of charity, it was the result of an act of charity to save this poor man who had been weeping. You may have seen the picture of Pope Francis in that same bunker, which I don't know if it's a museum or what exactly it is now, but the, uh, Pope John Paul II, of course, has been there. And uh, it, it's a powerful testimony of heroism. And that could only have been done because his conscience was telling him, I want this. I want this of you. Not, I mean, not everybody has the same call to that kind of martyrdom, but he had that sensitivity. So how am I going to arrive at that sensitivity of my conscience? How am I going to be able to, to be guided in my conscience from where, you know, what God wants? For me, not just between what is true and good and, and uh, evil and, and good and to choose the good, but also, wait a minute, Lord, what is your will for me? What is your plan for me, for my life? What crowns do I have to embrace? Do you want me to embrace the crown of virginity? Do you want me to embrace the crown of martyrdom? Do you want me to embrace the crown of marriage? Lifelong marriage. What do you want me to embrace? And that's why we need to, to meditate on this. And if you like, even if our Lord is not going to reveal himself in a vision, he can reveal himself through conscience and through a good formation. You know, I was reading recently this stunning passage from the prophet Ezekiel and uh, you know he was at a time of great persecution as well right during the Babylonian exile and uh, he was uh, you know a fairly young prophet at first but uh, he has a really weird vision he says uh, he says I looked a hand was there, stretching out to me, holding a scroll. He unrolled it in front of me. It was written in back and in front. On it was written lamentations, wailings, moanings. He said, Son of man, eat what is given to you. Eat this scroll, then go and speak to the house of Israel. I opened my mouth. He gave me the scroll to eat and said, Son of man, 
feed and be satisfied by the scroll I'm, going, I'm giving you. This guy's going to eat the scroll? This is like eating a book. Imagine if you took a book and you start eating a book. You know, they didn't have books then. They had scrolls. You know. It says, I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey. I have never tasted a book before, but uh, he said, then he said, son of man, go to the house of Israel and tell them what I have said. So, I mean, this seems a bit crude to be eating a scroll like that, but later on when you uh, analyze it, you, you, know, you see that uh, also in, in, the, in the text, uh, I was reading some commentary that the, when we read here, he ate, but it actually says he chewed and uh, you know, he munched on it, right? And uh, one, one author goes to the Greek and uh, he, he figures out that this was the, the meaning, meaning that when we take scripture, we don't physically eat it, but we incorporate, we, we have to chew on it in the sense that we have to uh, reflect on it. We have to, you know, um, uh, deeply uh, sort of imagine what the Lord is asking us, you know, um, munch on it, if you like, you know, uh, uh, in, the, in the sense that we want to try to understand, not, not just stay on the surface. Mm-hmm. And um, there are commentaries that can help us understand. But if we do that, if we, if you like, come in contact with the Word of God, mm-hmm. guided by the Scripture, rather guided by the magisterium, somewhere along the line also our conscience will be, well, better developed and we'll be able to do the, what the psalm says, taste and see the goodness of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And uh, the goodness of the Lord is that God has a plan for us and that there's good and there's evil and, and, and that he wants us to sort of live that in our life and to taste the sweetness of the Lord like honey. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll bring to our prayer our meditation on the scriptures uh, and uh, we'll find that Sweetness more delicious than anything here on earth. It's the meditation on the scriptures is really the foundation of the Christian life, the interior life. It's a, it's a whole uh, area for us uh, still to discover. Let us ask uh, our Blessed Mother, and in particular, let us ask Saint Maximilian Kolbe okay, to intercede for us, to enrich him so that we may taste the sweetness of the Lord in the Word of God. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.